real beasts. David, what did we do last time? Oh, man. Well, we didn't get through very much of this movie film. It's not our fault, though. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. Welcome back. We, we shirk all responsibility. And mm -hmm. we are here to pick up on Jurassic Park right as the tour is about to begin. That's right. That's right. So thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of Real Beasts. We are still talking about, that's right, Jurassic Park. The greatest dinosaur movie that we've so far talked about. Once we get through every movie with dinosaurs in them, we'll decide which is the best dinosaur movie ever made. Hmm. I think it's probably going to be this one. Yeah, this is the best one. We'll see. Um, so, yeah, we basically got through Act 1 of Jurassic Park last time. Uh, we ended with the lunch scene. An excellent scene. The entire philosophical problem of the entire movie hinges upon that scene. Um, and I think, Ben, last time you mentioned that it's a scene that doesn't always make it into blockbusters. A, yeah. a, a slower scene like that, which is cool to see. But next up, we get a couple of new characters showing up in this movie, which is very exciting. Wait, should we say our names? Ah, people know who we are. I'm David. I'm Ben. Cool. It's in media res. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you see, I know, I know some film lingo. Yeah, you do. It's. I think you're. You you already had at least a base level knowledge, and I think these episodes, I'm learning a lot more paleontology lingo, and I think you're learning filmmaking lingo. It's excellent. It's excellent. Cut and so print. we join the it. picture in media res, kind of, <laughs> and they're about to start the tour, and that mm -hmm. means. It's time to meet, yes, two new characters. It can't be a Spielberg film or at least a classic Spielberg film without having some kids. And That's it's true. Lex and Tim, and that is Hammond's grandkids. Yeah, Lex and Tim uh, Murphy, played by the actors. Lex is played by, hold on, let me find them. Lex is played by Ariana Richards, and Tim is played by Joseph Mazzello. And uh, <laughs> these kids are great in this movie. I think they're actually really awesome. When I was a little kid watching Jurassic Park, I absolutely related to Tim because as soon as Tim shows up, he's instantly finds Dr. Grant and just starts pestering him with question after question after question about dinosaurs. He brings up another paleontologist's book that he's read that talks about how I read this other book by by this guy named Backer and <laughs> yeah. he says <laughs> exactly he basically says birds are dinosaurs and Tim is like what is that true and of course we all know that this this is true but Dr. Grant has a fun uh, couple of m minutes where he's trying to get away from these kids because it's already been established with Laura Dern's character that uh, Alan Grant hates children thinks they're icky these kids are going to be good for him by the end of this film. Yeah, they're messy. They're expensive. They <laughs> yeah. smell. They smell. Some, Some of them smell. Some of them smell. Babies smell. So anyway, Lex and Tim show up. They're getting ready to go on their grand tour of Jurassic Park. This is where we get the great sequence of, of course, the Jurassic Park theme music by John Williams is amazing. They go through the King Kong-esque gates to get into the interior of the park. It's awesome. It's great. We're on an adventure now. 
things are moving quickly. Yes, they hop into these modified Ford Explorers on an electric track, and they've got touchscreens. And, mm -hmm. of course, it's very 90s, but the kids are pumped <laughs> about these touchscreens. And uh, Lex is riding with Dr. Grant eventually because Dr. Grant was desperately trying to avoid riding with one of the kids. But Dr. Sattler insists that Lex ride with him because mm -hmm. it'd be good for him. That's right. That's right. It would be good for him. And... You know, what's interesting about this sequence is that they, they treat Jurassic Park like a full-on zoo. You don't get to just walk around to see the animals. The animals have paddocks that are much too large for that. So they go on these these vehicles that have, like, they're almost like from Disneyland's Autopia cars that are that are, like, hooked into a track in the ground. So if anything were to go wrong, these cars cannot save you. No. You just have to get out. <laughs> Not that anything will go wrong. I mean, come on. We're not trying to give anything away. So they go off on the tour. And w Ben, one of the first things they see is nothing. Yeah. It's just a bunch of plants. Yep. I yep. guess some extinct plants. So Dr. Sattler's probably stoked. Yeah. I mean, all the folks in the control room are really, really nervously looking on. Almost like... I don't know, like a control room for NASA or something. Yeah. Just like watching with bated breath as they await their reaction to this tour. And first on the list is Dilophosaurus. Mm -hmm. And the voiceover is really fantastic. One of the earliest carnivores. We now know Dilophosaurus is actually poisonous, spitting its venom at its prey, causing blindness and eventually paralysis. And so you hear that coming over, and they're so stoked. They're like, Dilophosaurus, yes! And that channels the Ben energy. I mean, I love Dilophosaurus. It's one of my favorite dinosaurs of all time. It's so it cool. It turns out it, it wasn't one of the earliest carnivores. We found considerably earlier ones now, but it was one of the earliest kind of big carnivores. Huh. And it's interesting because in the voiceover, I actually think this is awesome because I, I wonder about these things and if they've been done on purpose. Mm -hmm. But where it says, we now know Dilophosaurus is actually poisonous, spitting its venom at its prey. Yeah, so I noted poison that. poison and venom interchangeably there. And that's, you know, not a best practice because a venomous animal uses something to, you know, spit or inject into its prey. And something poisonous is something that we deem to be toxic if it gets consumed by something else. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of pedanticness. But I'm like, yeah, Jurassic Park, it's a classic example of them like mostly doing their due diligence, but not quite. I <laughs> yeah. thought it was perfect. It was fitting. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you about that because I know from our time at the Academy of Sciences doing our uh, famous snake programs, we talk a lot about the difference between a venomous animal versus a poisonous animal and that kind of thing. So I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned just like a brief uh, little bit of, of the difference. Venomous animals inject uh that venom poisonous animals are consumed and are toxic so if i ate a poisonous animal i would get sick but if i ate a venomous animal what would happen maybe nothing or you might get sick too or i might get sick if i consumed <laughs> a whole rattlesnake i'd assume that i'd get sick anyway <laughs> maybe a tiny bit but, but let's continue i, let's I actually continue. have a question about dilophosaurus sure um do, do we actually know that they were venomous animals? Is that something they made up for this movie? 
Or is that another one of those things kind of like what they did with Velociraptor where they were like, hey, we got some evidence of something cool going on. Let's just say it is happening. Let's just say this big raptor is Velociraptor for the movie, even if it turns out not to be accurate. Is that a similar thing with the venom? Were they actually venomous? And how could how can we know that? So there's for this case, there's no evidence at all that Dilophosaurus was venomous. Damn, and I was so it, looking forward to. It's actually that yeah, it's a real. little bit. It's a little. I would yeah, it'd be pretty cool if that were true. It's a little <laughs> bit tough to know for sure because a lot of the features on venomous animals don't fossilize very well, uh, so you're not going to find venom glands or venom ducts mm -hmm. because they're soft tissue. But you can still find what we call osteological correlates for those soft tissue features mm -hmm. so you might either have additional spacing in the skull to account for where those venom glands would sit which we don't see you uh -huh. could also see potentially like some scarring on the bones for where there's soft tissue attachments we wouldn't necessarily see that with venomous animals but if something had a massive fleshy frill or crest like dilophosaurus has in the film mm -hmm. you potentially might see that reflected in the bone but probably not so it's hard to tell mm-hmm but one thing that we also don't see is grooves or hollow space in any of its teeth. Ah. So some venomous animals that inject venom via saliva have, or at least via their, an oral route, either have little grooves for the venom to drip down, usually like the, a couple of primary teeth that mm -hmm. are doing the biting, or they're just kind of like hypodermic, hypodermic needles where they have right hollow space on the inside that's attached to the venom gland mm -hmm. and we don't see any of that for dilophosaurus there's no evidence that it was venomous there's no evidence any dinosaurs were venomous however it's still possible that some of them were mm -hmm. it's just soft tissue preservation currently doesn't allow us to know that interesting so do you know where that idea came from for this movie specifically were they just making shit up yep <laughs> Awesome. Love it. Hey, but it ends up being very cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great idea. I love how it's thrown in there because yeah. it's, you know, it's plausible. And mm. I think that it is a fantastic idea to make these animals seem a little bit more fleshed out, pun intended, because mm. all we have is their bones. Why not give them some cool feature that the bones couldn't tell us? Because it enriches the story and it makes it seem more like an actual animal that you might be surprised to find something out about once you cloned it. So when the Jurassic Park scientists cloned Dilophosaurus, they're like, oh shit, this thing's venomous. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it? And they had to take different precautions, mm -hmm. give them a different enclosure, mm -hmm. and get ready to be accounting for that sort of thing that they weren't ready for. So I think it's a really neat fictional addition, and I'm glad they threw it in there. But no reason to think Dilophosaurus is venomous any more than any other carnivorous dinosaur. Uh-huh. It does. I agree with you, though, that it does sort of deepen the level of like world building that they do within this movie, even though it's not necessarily real. They've already established in this movie that none of these dinosaurs are legit. And that's something that actually uh, B.D. Wong's character in a later Jurassic Park film uh, kind of touches on in a, in, a, in a deeper way. I think we mentioned it briefly in the last episode. Um, when he says, you know, you wanted dinosaurs that would sell tickets, not dinosaurs that were real. And right. so that's, that is a part of Jurassic Park. I wish they would do it more accurately in every single movie. I'm still waiting for a raptor with full on feathers 
I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be wicked. I think it's going to be very scary. I'm working on a Jurassic World screenplay in which that happens. Ooh. But uh, working on. I say that very loosely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. OK, so that's that's interesting. I'm, I'm glad I asked you about Dilophosaurus because I grew up assuming it was true that this dinosaur was indeed venomous. Um, and yeah, I think it's not that's not venomous. And it also doesn't show up in this scene. They end up just mm -hmm. looking out their windows and no Dilophosaurus to be found, which I actually mm -hmm. loved too, because it's like when you go to a zoo exhibit and you're like, oh yes, this is the large enclosure for the Mexican wolf. And mm -hmm. you're just like, well, where are they? Yeah. And I think that that's a perfect example of classic expectations versus reality when you have uh -huh. animals behaving like animals they're just like yeah they're they're having their siesta right now and just none of them are out so yeah. you can't just i mean i know that later on we're going to talk about how they start to lure dinosaurs out deliberately but at this point they're just kind of hoping some of them are there to be seen and mm -hmm. none of them appear so they're left disappointed yeah yeah and some of the characters mention like well some some zoo you got here and nothing's out here it reminds me of a john mulaney joke where he's like you get to the zoo, the animals in the inside part, and everyone reacts. The inside part? Tell them we're here. Make them come out. <laughs> and they do, but not yet. Because first, they go from the, the Dilophosaurus uh, habitat. They continue on. They pass the Tyrannosaurus Rex paddock. They see nothing. Uh, they head over, or actually, they go to that next. They first go by the Triceratops, huh? Yeah, and then prior to that, there's a little discussion in the control room between Hammond and Nedry mm -hmm. because Nedry is there sitting there eating a Butterfingers and Ray Arnold, Samuel Jackson's character, is complaining that the vehicle headlights aren't responding and there's glitches in the system and they are kind of going, hey, Nedry, can you fix this? Mm -hmm. And he is not best pleased because he thinks he's kind of getting taken advantage of. And he's the only one in the park who can actually fix any of this shit. Yeah. And so he's like talking about how unappreciated he is. And you think that level of automation is easy or cheap? <laughs> you know anyone who can network eight machines and debug two million lines of code in my salary? If so, I'd love to see him try. And that's where something we touched upon last time where Hammond says, um, he talks about how he doesn't blame people for their mistakes, but he do ask that they pay for them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what mistake that's referring to yeah. in regards to Nedry. Because it seems like they've had a lot of arguments about his pay, but I don't know what he's sort of paying Hammond back for at this point. I don't know what he's done. All right. I have seen in the movie evidence is that they're over-reliant on him, but that he does a pretty good job yeah. automating all those features in the park. And there's very few staff. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about this subplot with Nedry is that they establish, even before the movie takes us to Isla Nublar and we see Jurassic Park, we meet Nedry being bribed by Dodgson, who is trying to steal embryos from Jurassic Park. And so even before we actually see how they're able to do any of this stuff, we already know, oh, Nedry is not to be trusted. Uh, and and it's and it is interesting that this scene sort of touches on like maybe why Nedry feels like he needs to make what is it two hundred thousand dollars stealing these these embryos or whatever. Um, I, I think it might have been per embryo. That's crazy. All we right, gotta well, check back on that. But come yeah. on, it, it, 
Look, in 2021, is anybody <laughs> mad at Nedry for making that choice? Maybe he's got kids. I don't know. Anyways, it is interesting because it seems like his issue is that he knows how rich Hammond is and how much money he's sinking into Jurassic Park. And he's like, well, I want more. And Hammond is saying, do your job well and you get paid what you get paid. And so that's where that kind of contention comes from. Um, this is also, we, we sort of skipped over introducing Samuel L. Jackson character in the, in the last episode, but he's a really important character because he's kind of the, uh, not necessarily voice of reason, but he is a little bit of, uh, uh, an explanation, explanatory character. He kind of explains some things. He does some exposition. He tells us how the, like the, the technological system works here briefly uh so he's very important in in some of those things it's kind of a small role considering this is samuel l jackson but this is also 1993 and he has a long career ahead of him oh, i love sure that man he, he isn't even mace windu yet when they make jurassic park that he's still <laughs> no, like six not. years away from being mace windu so that, that's that there's time for his star to shine but it really yes. does in this movie and there's also time for him to say one of the best lines of the film a couple times. Oh, yeah. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Which they certainly have to do because at the Tyrannosaur paddock, mm-hmm. they're waiting there to see the Tyrannosaur. And they're kind of musing about how you know T-Rex doesn't care about these park schedules. And T-Rex doesn't want to sit there getting fed a goat. Mm-hmm. It wants to hunt something. And that's where... You know, Dr. Grant is talking about, like, T-Rex doesn't want to be fed. He wants to hunt. This is a classic example of them slipping in to male pronouns, masculine pronouns for the dinosaurs, even though they know they're all female. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Good catch. Speaking of, there's also one of my favorite lines in this movie is in this scene when Dr. Malcolm goes, God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. And then Dinosaurs Dr. Settler. Yeah. Eat man. Woman inherits the earth. It's perfect. It's, Amazing it's, line. It's awesome. I love it. I love that this movie, you know, is still a product of its time in some ways. Pretty much every single character is white. Obviously, Samuel L. Jackson is in there, but like he dies. Many of the characters die, to be fair. But the only ones left are all white characters. It's mostly male characters in this movie. However, Laura Dern's character and oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name again. The 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 girl who plays Lex, Ariana Richards, they're both really important and do a lot of really cool stuff in this movie. So it it feels a little bit like both a product of its time and ahead of its time in some ways, all kind of mixed in together. Boy, um, I mean, when you compare it to the sexual politics of Jurassic World, it is Yeah. A brachiosaurus head above, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. Holy shit. When so, you talk about devolution, that's what ends up <laughs> happening with these movies. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, anyway, we won't, we won't we'll talk about him. that yet. We'll get to that. But <laughs> anyway, so they bring out a goat to try to lure the T-Rex over to them. But so far, nothing. And that's where Malcolm, you know, he taps on the speaker and he's like, uh, eventually you plan on having uh, dinosaurs on your on your dinosaur tour, right? <laughs> uh, hello? Hello, hello, hello. And that's when Hammond is just uh, in the control room looking at the screen, 
he's not on the intercom. He just watches it, shakes his head, and he just goes, I really hate that man. Yep. And then we get Malcolm jumping into his, you know, oh, a little yeah. bit of the essence of chaos. He, he does a little demonstration. Um, Dr. Ellie Sattler goes, I'm not clear on chaos. And he's like, oh, it's, what does he say? It de- simply deals with unpredictability and complex systems. Uh, shorthand is the butterfly effect, which is the idea that a butterfly in one part of the world can flap its wings and the reverberating ripple effect of that little bit of wind from the butterfly can create a, a hurricane on the other side of the planet. And it actually is, again, uh, Malcolm is sort of part of the philosophical core of or heart of this movie by saying, like, you can try and control nature all you want. You can't. It's not possible. And here he gives a little quick demonstration with a glass <laughs> of water, dripping it on uh, Dr. Sattler's hand. And it goes different ways. And he's like, there's chaos theory. Bada bing, bada boom, baby. And I, as a kid, was like... <laughs> I could sn- smell the bullshit already. But in this movie, I think it actually works. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and Malcolm does say that the experiment should happen under still conditions. But basically mm-hmm. the idea is he drops a drop of water on Dr. Sattler's hand and then the bead of water rolls off her hand. So then he asks her to predict where the next drop of water is going to roll off, assuming he places it at the exact same spot. And what happens is he drops that water in the same spot, but the drop of water slides off her hand in a totally different direction. Whoa. And chaos. Yes. It's the essence of unpredictability. <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiny variations in the initial conditions, meaning he didn't place the drop maybe a hundred percent in the same spot. And the hairs on her skin were aligned in a different way. And he also says imperfections in the skin. And she goes, imperfections in the skin. Yeah. Um, and- but all those tiny microscopic variations they never repeat, and they vastly affect the outcome, and that is unpredictability. So that's the bottom line mm-hmm. of what Malcolm is kind of modeling mathematically when he looks at Jurassic Park. Yeah. And is this in the re- book, he goes way into it. Oh, really? I I yeah. read the book when I was in high school. I should have reread it before this episode, but, you know, this is a, this is a podcast about movies, not books. Ugh. Um, <laughs> is chaos theory an actual science? Do oh, dude, yeah, this? absolutely. Yeah. Whoa. I thought it was yeah. just uh, Jeff Goldblum making stuff up. No, no, no. Chaos theory is real. Um, and we talked about it a bit last time with the double pendulum experiment. Oh, that's where right. We you did, can yeah. easily predict the movement of a single pendulum, but you add a second one in and then it gets really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So it's like that with any complex system that relies on knowing initial conditions very exactly to know the outcome mm-hmm. and that's essentially david the reason why we can't predict the weather very well even a couple weeks out like mm-hmm. here we are we've been to space we have created electric cars yeah we have reconstructed the human genome and cloned sheep but we can't predict the weather two weeks out very well i mean we can know based on trends a likelihood within a range of error what it will most likely be but we can't say very uh-huh. well what it'll be and we can't predict big storms mm-hmm. we can't predict earthquakes yeah. because of chaos theory essentially the initial conditions matter so much for the outcome that unless we can model where every molecule of air is we won't know what the weather is going to be in two weeks very fascinating well. so that's so, kind of stems or you know that that idea is connected to that butterfly uh 
flapping its wings near Beijing, creating a hurricane in the Caribbean, because it's it's impossible to know how those kinds of particles in the air circulate and what causes another thing to happen. And yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's like we don't have the resolution on the initial conditions. We can know how everything works perfectly, but without having the data on all of those things also perfect, we still can't predict it. So even if we model mm. the physics and we know how everything ought to interact because of uncertainty principle, even the act of measuring something changes it, mm -hmm. we can never get there as mm -hmm. far as we know. I don't know. I'm not up on my quantum theory right now, but that's as far as I know is that, <laughs> you know, if you measure something, for example, with a electron microscope, you have to hit it with some electrons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and even doing that changes the thing that you're measuring. So at some point, just the act of observation alters the outcome. So the bottom line is, no matter how good we get at measuring and modeling stuff, it'll never be perfect. And especially with things like weather that relies so heavily on knowing initial conditions, mm -hmm. you're bound to have a limit. That's why you can know the weather quite well for a couple of days from now, but pretty poorly a month from now. Mm -hmm. And then if you're trying trends. to measure the effects of a changing climate going off into the rest of the century, it gets even a wider, wider, wider range of, uh, you know, complexity. Yeah, it's hard to know exactly what it'll do, but we can put bounds on it, mm -hmm. and that's what's powerful. So that we put bounds on it, we know, given these sets of initial conditions, there is a 90% likelihood we're looking at this, mm -hmm. between this and this, mm -hmm. that these makes and sense. these outcomes. So we, we can, it's not just we can't know anything, we still know in the summertime that it's very likely that in two weeks it'll be warm mm -hmm. and sunny versus the wintertime, because we have trends to look at and we know how right. to model the conditions well. Right. But we can't tell you very well if it'll be 72 degrees or 76 degrees. Yeah. And we'll know like, oh, this is this is hurricane season. This is wildfire season. But we can't say, hey, there's a hurricane going to gonna pop out of nowhere three weeks from now. Right. Makes exactly. sense. Yep. And exactly. the essence of chaos theory in this movie is again represented because as soon as Dr. Malcolm and Dr. Sattler finish their little demonstration... Dr. Grant jumps out of the car and he, he sees something off out, out the window and he jumps out and he goes running off. Dr. Sattler follows him and Dr. Malcolm goes, and there's another example. See, here I am now uh, by myself. I'm uh, uh, talk, talking to myself. That, that's chaos theory. Fantastic line. And <laughs> just a great line reading because he's staring straight ahead. He's not even looking out the window. Yep. So it's genius. they leap out of the car towards something. And here's where... This is just absurd to me. In the control room, everyone's panicking because two of the people have just jumped out of the cars on the tour. And Hammond says, stop the program. Stop the program. And Muldoon <laughs> says, I told you how many times we needed locking mechanisms on the vehicle doors. And I'm like, first of all, that's the most highfalutin way to say they didn't put freaking locks on the doors. And second of all, how could they not put locks on the doors of the cars? Are you kidding me? Yeah. On the tour in Jurassic Park? Pe like, people that's do a, that at zoos that don't have dinosaurs. <laughs> it's an epic oversight. But they go or walking sanctuaries. out into an open field. And here you know, Tim is still mm -hmm. talking about the book. And he says, by a guy named Bacher? And it, or he's referring to Robert T. Bacher, Bob Bacher. I think he says Baker or something. He says a mispronunciation that's really funny. Um, <laughs> and one of the thing that's that the thing that's great about the references to Bob Bacher is that Jack Horner and Bob Bacher do not really see eye to eye about T Rex. 
specifically. Oh, interesting. Um, because Bob Bakker is a big proponent of T-Rex being an active predator and Jack Horner thought T-Rex is a scavenger. And so they have like mm. a playful intellectual battle going on. And so because um, Jack Horner is the scientific advisor for Jurassic Park, he actually kind of ribs Bakker several times throughout the Jurassic Park films. <laughs> and in The Lost World, the paleontologist character, who's kind of a total goofball, is, is supposed to be Bob Bakker. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So in this case, he's also hating on Bakker's hypotheses about dinosaur extinction yeah. by a Tim. <laughs> I love that. I see there there are things in this movie that I have no frame of reference for. I I had no idea that that Bob Bakker was like a a real life paleontologist, let alone he's mentioned in the movie because Jack Horner and he are rivals. That's pretty funny. Yeah, they're kind of like humorous rivals they're both mm -hmm. definitely on the same side of history in terms of the dinosaur renaissance like dinosaurs fast warm-blooded all mm -hmm. that stuff they're, they're very aligned in that sense and bob bacher was pioneering because he kind of wrote this book i think called the dinosaur heresies which is really cool but he throws a lot of ideas out there that in my opinion he doesn't have a lot of evidence for uh -huh. but it turned out that he was right about most of them so he kind of oh, like went out on a bunch of limbs and then those limbs turned out to be really strong limbs. Yeah. Once once people found data to, to, to support it and whatnot. Yeah. Wow, so he's a little bit of a maverick. Cool. And he has kind of a cult following. But that's beside the point. Awesome. Um, they're heading out into this field. And what they stumble upon is a gorgeous but sick triceratops. <laughs> gorgeous but sick. Yeah. This is one of the great examples of... I mean, Spielberg has done this many times in many of his movies. You think about Jaws, you think about E.T., you think about, you know, all these things. Uh, practical effects come into play a lot in this movie. Practical effects meaning things that are in camera, that the camera actually films, as opposed to things that are generated via a computer or something like that. So this Triceratops, it's big, it's sick, it's laying on the ground, and it's, I believe, an animatronic triceratops it's yeah. got robotic levers and things going on that make it able to move its head it blinks its eyes it breathes and it's and its belly moves up and down and it it looks amazing like watching it today it's astounding how good that kind of uh you know prop it is a prop it looks incredible it's so cool um, Dr. Grant has a moment where he's resting on its belly as it as it breathes up and down and he's his body is moving up and down with it. And it's just it's great. I, I love that moment. It's have, an emotional scene. because yeah. Dr. Grant, you know, despite this being, you know, an animal in distress, I mean, he is sitting on top of it as it breathes. And that's the moment where in one instant, Dr. Grant becomes five years old mm -hmm. because he's suddenly on the exact same level as tim is in terms of the sheer awe and just com being completely overcome by he's confronted by essentially his childhood hero in the flesh and he's just reveling in this moment mm -hmm. meanwhile dr sattler true to form is like well let's figure out what's going on yeah she's paleobotanist tongue that's again where the prop is just stupendous i mean it's tongue mm-hmm the detail that they put on that thing is incredible. It's so cool. It's Micro so vesicles cool. in the tongue, and she looks at its eye. Its pupils are dilated, which makes her realize that it's a pharmacological problem that it's encountering here. Because mm -hmm. um, there's 
Dr. Harding, who's like the field veterinarian out there with the Triceratops, mm -hmm. is describing what the problem is with this Triceratops to Dr. Sattler. And he's baffled as to what the problem is. So Dr. Sattler gets on the case and she thinks that it's from eating West Indian lilac. Dr. <laughs> Harding doesn't think that they eat that stuff. And that means there's only one way to be positive, David. What's that? We got to go dig into a big pile of shit. Yep. Dino but uh, droppings? Droppings? <laughs> but before we can look at the pile of shit, uh, we cut back to the control room. And, and Muldoon is on the phone talking with a, a storm forecaster. There's a big old hurricane headed towards Isla Nublar. And they just go, all right, we, we got to get them back to base. Like, we'll, we'll continue the tour wherever we left off or whatever. Um, and they also mentioned that the ship that is leaving Isla Nublar is about to go. Yep. That's important. Then we cut back to the pile of shit. Dr. Yep. Sattler is <laughs> digging around. She's looking in, she's looking in this gigantic, it's literally a humongous pile of shit. And she's digging around, finding stuff in it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the lawyer Gennaro starts getting nervous. Uh, they can start to hear thunder. They're like, we should probably head back. Um, yada, yada, yada. We, we then cut over to Nedry, who's on the phone with the, uh, captain of the ship who's leaving Isla Nublar and pleading for him to give Nedry some time. Nedry has to go do some, I guess, corporate espionage. <laughs> and yeah. and steal these embryos. And the way that he does it is actually is is interesting because I'm I'm I wonder if had Nedry not been greedy and wanted to make some money and steal these embryos, would everything have gone to shit at Jurassic Park? Maybe, well, maybe not. We'd have to ask a chaos theory. Yeah, I mean probably not probably not that day <laughs> specifically. And this is uh where things really start to take a turn right mm -hmm. here. So Nedry talks about how there are going to be some systems maybe going offline because he has to reboot some of the minor systems mm -hmm. as he's debugged the phones. And he says it in the most suspicious way of all time. <laughs> he does. It's like, uh, uh, I finished debugging the phones, so, uh, 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 yeah, so I did. So I debugged the phones. And uh, I thought maybe I should tell you the system's going to be uh, uh, compiling for 18 to 20 minutes. So some of the minor systems, they may go on and off for a while, but it's something to worry about. It's just a simple thing. And then he just very nervously goes back to the console, hits the execute button, and that means his timeline has begun. He must act right now in order to get these embryos and get them to the dock before the storm comes because that means the boat has to leave even sooner than mm -hmm. he expected. He has to cut his timeline. So he is on the clock. Yeah. But of course... In order to heighten the suspense, we shift back to the cars sitting there in the rain. That's right. And we have a nice moment between uh, Dr. Grant and Dr. Malcolm. They kind of bond a little bit. Um, Dr. Grant asks Dr. Malcolm, do you have kids? Malcolm's like, me? Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. I, I love kids. I've got three. Uh, he's always looking for the next, the, the future ex-Mrs. Malcolm, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Jeff Goldblum never acts in movies. He just is Jeff Goldblum in whatever movie he's in. He is Jeff Goldblum in Thor Ragnarok. He is Jeff Goldblum in uh, 
the invasion of the body snatchers. He is Jeff Goldblum in Independence Day, and he's perfect in all of those movies. He's excellent. I'm I'm a big uh, Jeff Goldblum fan, obviously. Um, so this is a ridiculous moment. He's being fairly misogynistic in some ways. And then we continue on, and Arnold and Hammond are noticing that some of the door security systems are shutting down. And Hammond says, well, Nedry said that would happen, right? And then we cut back to Nedry, who's in the cool in the cold storage area, actively stealing embryos and putting them in that can of, of shaving cream to get out of there. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the interesting things is there are some dinosaur embryo names that are misspelled in that cold storage room. No way. In. I yeah. didn't notice that. Yeah. And I've, I've wondered, like, was that on purpose or not? And again, all these little Easter egg things, I think they're on purpose to just show the recklessness of Jurassic Park, the sloppiness around the corners. It's this beautiful, yeah. glossy product. But if you look closely... It might be too soon, but it's like looking at the Johnson and Johnson vaccines being manufactured <laughs> in Baltimore, where it's like, oh yeah, everything's going great, but oops, we accidentally mixed in some AstraZeneca. So that's what's going on with uh, these embryos. Stegosaurus is misspelled. Tyrannosaurus is misspelled. Interesting. That does strike me as something that was intentional by Spielberg and the and the production team, probably set deck because. Um, Movies are incredibly detailed. People people aren't just putting things into a scene or on camera willy-nilly. And so I bet that that was intentionally showing the audience like, hey, there's there's some rot at the core of this idea because, yeah, it's a great idea. They're sparing no expense. But at the end of the day, they don't even know what they're doing. They don't know how to spell the names of these animals. So are right. they really thinking of every single detail possible? And of course, Definitely not. we find out. No, they are not. <laughs> they are not. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, Muldoon gets very nervous and goes, the raptor fences aren't out, are they? Because he's constantly worried about the raptors. Again, we have yet to actually see a velociraptor in this movie. We're over an hour into this movie, and all we do is hear about them. It's excellent. It's Dude, so we're good. yet to see any dinosaurs normally on the tour the only one that they've seen is That's the sick triceratops yeah now that was yeah. a touching moment but hammond is not best pleased that they have to turn the cars around with the first day being what he called two no-shows and one sick triceratops yeah yeah so not great but it gets even more not great because as the cars are heading back and retracing their steps they get back to the tyrannosaur paddocks and that's where the cars stop that's right so at this point, Arnold and Hammond are realizing something is very wrong in the control room. And they're trying to get into Nedry's computer. And of course, we get the great moment where their access keeps getting denied. And then a little computerized Nedry pops up and goes, ah, 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 ah. you didn't say the magic word. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Please. God damn it. I hate this hacker crap. <laughs> it's amazing. So the vehicles have stopped in front of the Tyrannosaurus paddock because I think the car's are are part of the grid that ends up shutting down it's not exactly uh totally expressed what happens to the cars but we can assume they're part of the system that's being shut down we yes. also notice that the t-rex fence is not electrified anymore uh-oh it's pouring rain the goat is still over there 
until not for it's long. Not. <laughs> yeah, they show an amazing scene. So rather than them looking at the fence and seeing the lights are out, the camera just zooms into the T Rex's two fingered hand mm-hmm. with claw touching and leaning yeah. against the side of the fence, and it's like, oh shit, yeah. son, we the know fence isn't electrified, and it's lights out for the goat. Uh huh. And so then we then we cut into one of the cars. Tim's playing around with some uh, night vision goggles. Uh, Lex is hanging out. She's bored. Uh, Grant and Malcolm are like hanging out in their car. Doctor Grant fills up his his canteen with with rainwater for a second, and then suddenly we notice some vibration. Mm. We pick up and some good are- vibration. These, yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> depending on your perspective, these are either good or bad vibrations. I think yeah. from from a moviegoer's perspective, it's very good vibrations, mm-hmm. but for the characters, not so much. They get these amazing concentric rings in the two glasses of water sitting on the dash of yes. the car. And Classic shot. Every footfall of this tyrannosaur that we still haven't seen creates these perfect concentric rings, which they accomplish, David, by plucking a guitar string mm-hmm. underneath this car because they couldn't find a way of getting these rings to be so circular yeah. otherwise. Because if you just jostle the car, it's just going to look like chaotic waves going through. And so they actually were, someone was plucking a guitar string to get those vibrations. Right. But I have to say, it's an absolutely iconic moment. But boy, is this T-Rex stepping really slowly and really hard. Yeah. It's just <laughs> it's just stomping one foot at a time, really making no progress getting over to the goat. And, yeah. but damn, is it dramatic? <laughs> it's so dramatic. And I and love the, um, the, the, the water vibrations in the cup because it's another great example of how, you know, as audience members, we don't always think about the amount of thought put into a shot that is actually in a movie for less than a second. Or something like that. You know, every frame of a movie, there are teams and teams of people thinking about how do we make this work? What should it look like? What colors do we want on camera? What is is everything made of? How do we make it look the way we want it to look? And then even with that, there is so much experimenting going on before the cameras start rolling just to see, like, will this work? Will this not work? Can we get this to happen? You know, uh, there are so many examples of just like workshopping happening on set and extremely long days because something that they want to get on camera is not working. And I, I just love that. In the it, we, we learned about the guitar string in the making of Jurassic Park documentary, which I recommend every single listener of Real Beasts uh, should definitely watch this documentary uh, hosted by James Earl Jones about the making of Jurassic Park. It's It's fantastic. If you're curious about how this movie was made it's excellent it it's it's just it's just very well done uh anyways i had to geek out about that for a second oh man i miss working on set it's so fun (laughs) anywho so we're we're realizing something is coming and at that moment the lawyer gennaro jumps out of the car and runs away and hides in the bathroom and lex just goes he left us he left us Ah!" well what was david what was that in response to it was in response to uh oh that's right something falls on the roof of the car it is a dismembered goat's leg (laughs) 
and that's the first <laughs> moment we see the Tyrannosaurus. It lets out a roar, and that's when Jornara bolts. And yep. this is one of the coolest moments of any movie ever. Uh, I still get kind of goosebumps when I'm watching this movie, and we see this first roar of the T-Rex in the rain, eating this goat, oh. and it just standing above these these cars. And then immediately it pushes the fence over because the fence is no longer electrified and it just cannot keep this beast in, this real no. beast. <laughs> I have to say, we got to pause here for just a second to say, this is my favorite movie scene of all time. Oh, yeah. My favorite scene of my favorite movie. So this is the creme de la creme uh -huh. for me. It doesn't get any better than this. I have memorized every beat I even memorized the sounds that it makes and the choreography of the T-Rex breaking through the fence. And I used to try to like replicate it when I was a kid, but it's a, it's a three step that the T-Rex does after it finishes breaking through the fence. And it makes three sounds. Mm -hmm. It goes, psh, uh, psh, uh, psh, <laughs> and then spot it on. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to do any louder or I'll break the microphone, but it, it has this amazing bellow, mm -hmm. and this is where, you know, Malcolm in the car is like, I hate being right all the time. Yeah. He's here. He was right. In this case, it is not a good thing. Yeah. And it T-Rex is on the loose, and it is investigating these explorers, exactly. particularly when there's a light moving all around, which... I am still genuinely unsure what Lex thinks she's doing shining that light at the T-Rex. Kids, man. Dr. Grant was right. They're terrible. They just, they turn on a light inside the car. So obviously the T-Rex is interested, realizes there's something going on in there. It puts its nose straight through the roof of the car. There's this amazing action sequence. And, and luckily, uh, Dr. Grant, hops up and is like oh my god something's going crazy uh the the t-rex ends up actually flipping the ford explorer over and starts stepping on it biting the tires and the wheels and stuff and it's extremely horrifying as a child watching this movie i was both thrilled because i was like yes this scene is so cool. And I was also legitimately afraid of, of what was going on. I was like, oh my God. I think they take it pretty far in terms mm -hmm. of like, okay, you do not expect Jurassic Park. You don't expect a Spielberg film to kill a kid. Yeah, you but don't. But it's like this movie pretty, toys like, with it. <laughs> yes. It gets like really hairy for these kids. And even on set, they were dealing with the animatronic T-Rex for this scene. And there is a mixture of CGI. And this is where the CGI looks perfect because it's nighttime and it's raining. Exactly. It literally looks real. But anytime the T-Rex is interacting directly with the car or with the people, it's animatronic. Mm -hmm. And they were having all sorts of trouble with this full-size T-Rex animatronic because the rain was messing with the electronics. They were losing control. It was getting the shakes. Yeah. And one of the things that happened is I actually don't think the T-Rex was supposed to break the skylight glass on the Explorer. So when it broke the glass and the kids are holding it up screaming, that's a genuine response. Oh, my God. That's another one of those things. When you're, when you're making a movie, once those cameras roll, sometimes weird things happen that you don't expect, and they end up in the final cut because it looks good. Like, that's with which um, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. Hitchcock, a genius of filmmaking, also kind of a fucked up dude. 
he made some of his actors do some stupid shit and he was kind of some would say abusive others would say oh it's just the times blah, blah, blah. sounds if like you, kubrick to me if you want to work in hollywood you gotta deal with it First of all, that's bullshit. Everyone who works in the film industry has inherent worth, and anybody who treats people shitty, shittily, is an asshole. There's there's no room for assholes anywhere, and Hollywood has been allowing it to happen for a very, very long time. Of course, we've all heard about everything going down in Hollywood today, but yeah. So The only thing I, I want to say about Hitchcock is that in the movie The Birds, there are some moments where he lied to the actors i've heard this story don't know if it's totally true but i'm going to tell it on here anyway audience members listeners do your due diligence find out if this is true and let me know um <laughs> but i believe he told the the main actress in the birds that there would not be real live birds in a specific scene and they'd all be animatronic and she was like okay cool and then she went in there and they let loose a bunch of real birds and it's actual fear that we see in in the cut of the movie because she did not. She was lied to. And so sometimes those kinds of things happen where directors like I, I'm going to push this actor like. Basically too far to get this thing on camera. Right. And then there are other things like like what it sounds like happened here where an animatronic thing is all wet in the rain and they lose a little bit of control. That shit can get dangerous, you know? Yeah, and I, that's and the thing. When I heard that story, David. I was like. I want to believe this story, but also if something went wrong with the prop here and this thing weighs thousands of pounds, yeah, huge. were they not concerned that they're about to actually kill the kids in real life? Yeah. I mean, I think like, it's I probably like, likely that they had stand-ins or stunt doubles or something like that. That's um, true. But you know, it, you never know. Yeah, and those stunt doubles, <laughs> who cares about them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and for the moment, since the Oscars are going to be happening this weekend, uh, when is there going to be an Academy Award for stunts? Come on! Just throwing that out there. Um, yeah, they just don't want Tom Cruise to win every time. <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> Anywho, the T-Rex is on the loose. It's attacking this. Dr. Grant, in this movie, they establish that if you do not move, a Tyrannosaurus Rex's eyes cannot actually track you. They can't pick you up if you're not moving. So he hops out of his car and sparks a, a road flare and gets the T-Rex's attention away from the car that the children are in. And he throws the road flare. And then Dr. Malcolm sparks another road flare and runs away with it. And so, of course, the T-Rex goes after Malcolm and, like, kind of scoops him up and throws him, does some damage to him. He gets injured. He falls into the bathroom and the bathroom falls apart, and there's Gennaro sitting on the toilet. And what happens? He's gone. He's the first casualty of <laughs> Jurassic Park. And this has launched a thousand parodies and spoofs. Memes. Because the lawyer got eaten first. Yep, exactly. I mean, I guess the 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 frontline worker at the very beginning of the movie is i guess the first casualty oh that's that's true you're right but yes the the lawyer is the first casualty within like the the main plot of 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 the movie for sure um so at this point the t-rex sort of gets its meal and it and it moves off in a way uh back to the other vehicle which lex and tim are at and dr grant runs over there and they have this moment where they're like okay don't move it can't see us if it do if we don't move, which Ben, 
in in a previous episode, you vented a little bit about how T Rexes have an excellent sense of smell. Do you think it matters if we would if if there was a T Rex looking straight at us, would it notice us even if we were standing still? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's what I figured the answer. Yeah, would be. this is another invention <laughs> um, in the book and movie that's it's not really based on a whole lot. Um, you know, honestly, most animals' visual acuity is based on movement, just not to the extent that they have it in the movie where it's literally blind, it seems like, if you're not moving. Like, if you look at the ground and you're just looking at a bunch of dirt and you're like, all right, find the ant, you'd be like, I can't find it. But yeah. as soon as the ant starts moving, you'd find it instantly because our visual acuity is based on movement too. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that something standing right in front of the T-Rex's face definitely could still see and <laughs> not to mention it had binocular vision most dinosaurs in general and even most carnivorous dinosaurs had their eyes sort of on the side of their head because their heads are pretty laterally compressed they're pretty kind of thin mm -hmm. but t-rex has a really boxy head and it actually had its eyes facing forward which means that the visual fields of the two eyes overlap hmm. meaning it had binocular vision and could tell depth so it had depth perception, which other dinosaurs lacked. And that means that Dr. Grant and Lex would have been toast, assuming yeah. the T-Rex were hungry. And, and instead, that's... it just sits right in front of them like an inch away and sniffs off Dr. Grant's hat. Yeah. Somehow, it's pretty ridiculous. Now, binocular vision, having eyes on the front of your skull, that's something that is pretty common with predatory animals, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So not all predators, but ones that rely on knowing distance in order to grab prey or pounce on prey. A lot of ambush predators have it mm -hmm. and a lot of pursuit predators have it. Um, raptorial birds are renowned for having it. Mm -hmm. Owls and eagles and mm -hmm. hawks because they need to know exactly how far their prey is away from them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we consider to be prey animals have a larger total field of view with their eyes on the side of their head, but they just can't tell depth as well. Mm -hmm. So like a deer can look around and see an incredibly huge proportion of the landscape around it, but because its food is static, mm -hmm. it just has to eat some plants. It's not that important for it to be able to know precisely how far away that plant is from its face, but it is important for it to know that there might be a mountain lion somewhere generally in its surroundings. Yeah. So it sacrifices some of that depth perception for a larger field of view. And it's the other way around for the predators, which have binocular vision. Right. So an animal like a human, we can see straight forward extremely well. We can see depth, which is good for, um, you know, driving, which is why we evolved our eyes on fr the front of our heads, I'm sure. <laughs> um, as opposed to deer, like you mentioned, which have... A better peripheral view they can see the sides and almost almost all the way to behind them not quite you know what's directly behind them but like a larger field of view around them so it makes sense that for an animal that is trying to target something that is moving and attack it you got to be able to see straight ahead and and have that binocular vision if you're trying to avoid becoming that meal you got to be able to look around you so that strikes me as something that kind of adds to um I forget the paleontologist's name that you mentioned, but earlier you said that there was someone who disagreed with Jack Horner. Yeah. Bob Jack Bob Horner Bob. thought T-Rex was a scavenger, but having 
binocular vision for a T-Rex, that strikes me as more evidence that it was not just a scavenger, or maybe not only a scavenger, but was also an active hunter. Yeah, there are multiple lines of evidence that suggest T-Rex was an active predator. That's mm. one of them, but it's a little bit more of a passive piece of evidence because it is possible that T-Rex inherited that characteristic. So mm. we talked about this a bit before. There are cases where you have features because they're adaptive and through time you kind of um, have an innovation towards a feature that will help you do something, basically, mm-hmm. or that is adaptive. Or you can just be like, well, that's the hand I've been given and regardless of how well it works for a given function, you have to start there as your base point. So it's possible that Mm -hmm. it could be that their ancestors were using their binocular vision for active predation, but they weren't. So that is a possibility. But other lines of evidence show us that they were probably active predators, including bite marks on other animals where there was regrowth of bone. So So that would mean it was bitten and then it escaped and healed. Yes, Mm-hmm. Ah, so yeah, yes. that that sounds like it was it was being hunted. It's pretty much a smoking gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad we established that Dr. Grant is at least sometimes a little bit full of shit. Um, so they're at this car. The T Rex sniffs them. Somehow doesn't realize that they're there, and then it starts pushing the truck over the side of this cliff. And Dr. Grant has, I think, Lex on his back, and he has to go over the yeah. cliff. There's this awesome, awesome sequence where he's hanging by a, a cable from the fence that the T-Rex knocked over, and he's hanging down below this kind of cliff face here, and the truck is being pushed over. This is another example of very smart filmmaking, because if you have something that needs to be either computer generated which is incredibly expensive and time consuming or animatronic which is also expensive and time consuming and also can go wrong and cause the actual production to slow down when it gets the shakes or you know there are electrical problems with it it's smart to reduce the number of actual shots that you can see the dinosaur in We see this kind of earlier in the movie when they feed the raptors in the raptor paddock and you just hear the raptors. You see the plants moving around. You know the raptors are devouring this cow, but you don't actually see it. That's smart. It increases the the suspense of the moment, but you also know what's going on. You're, You're aware of what's going on, but your imagination is a little bit scarier than what you actually see. This is another scene that I think was very intelligently done because... The vantage point, the camera is looking at Dr. Grant hanging down this cliff from below him. And above him, all the you can see... The vantage point. The, the vantage point, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but all you can see is the Ford Explorer slowly getting pushed over the edge. You can't see the T-Rex. So yeah. that's an excellent example. And also, example. meanwhile, yeah. Tim is still in the fucking car. Yeah, Tim's still in it. <laughs> and he's in it as it goes over the edge, narrowly missing Lex and, and Alan Grant... And it falls into a tree. And so they have to climb down the cliff. And then Grant has to climb up the tree to get Tim out. But before that happens, we cut back to the control room. Because Arnold and Hammond are realizing shit is hitting the fan out there. Uh, Dr. Sattler and Muldoon decide to go out there and try and find... uh, 
or Hammond asks them to get a gas Jeep and go out there and find his grandchildren. Ellie says, I'm going with him. Arnold turns to Hammond and says, I can't get Jurassic Park back online without Dennis Nedry. Which what? is a problem. Yeah, You're that's a problem. you on one guy. Exactly. So they put all their eggs in the Nedry-shaped basket covered in <laughs> Butterfingers. And that's not a good idea if you don't know how to reboot Jurassic Park without a single dude. So this is a critical flaw in Jurassic Park. They're understaffed and they're over-reliant on automation and they're over-reliant on the one guy that designed the automation yep and you know meanwhile dr sattler is in this position in the first place because she decided to stay with the triceratops to mm -hmm. try to help figure out what was going on and so she avoided being stuck with the explorers while That's this is right. going we forgot to so mention, she yeah, goes out with Muldoon. the crew a little bit yeah she goes out with Muldoon to try to form a rescue party here and this is where um yeah, they, they have no idea what to expect when they reach the paddock. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that in a minute because yeah. we got some more unbelievably iconic scenes on the near horizon here. Exactly. But first, we have to catch up with Nedry. Nedry's plan is going awry. He's got the embryos in his little canister. He's heading out to get to the dock to escape Isla Nublar. Realistically, he's he's too late anyways. The boat has probably left already, but he's trying to rush. It's still pouring rain. They're in the middle of the hurricane here on the island, and he ends up running into a sign pointing to the east dock, and he knocks the sign over, and there's this great moment where he... he yes! Oh my God, Ben, you have the sign. And the, I've got the sign. That's amazing. I love that. Um, for the listeners at home, Ben has the East Dock sign from the movie. Um, but Nedry knocks it over and then he tries to turn the arrow to figure out, oh God, which direction <laughs> is the East Dock? And it's this, it's this great moment. It's very silly. Um, and then he, he realizes he can kind of see the road. Um, and he, oh, you know what? He, his car gets stuck, though. His he has to winch stuck. it out. That's right. That's what I forgot. His yeah, car so he, stuck. he's frantically driving around aimlessly after he breaks the East Dock sign. And in his haste, you know, he's wiping his glasses off. He's disheveled. He realizes that, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars are on the line here. Not to mention Jurassic Park is going to shit. And he doesn't know <laughs> what he's about to come back to. Because even though he knew some systems would turn off, he didn't know the T-Rex was going to get out. Yeah, he didn't know that the the dinosaurs were going to just have a taste for human flesh immediately upon those systems dying and then no. he runs into our favorite uh likely non-venomous dinosaur the dilophosaurus and there's an awesome sequence where he's trying to get his jeep unstuck with the with the um you know the, the cable winch. the winch at the, at the front of the jeep and he runs into a dilophosaurus which is just kind of looking at him and it's yeah, this... they have a little cute game of uh, let's look around the tree and not look at each other quite. Yeah. And it's making these adorable little kind of, I don't know, chirping, whooping noises. And finally, <laughs> it appears out in the open. It's kind of small. And there's actually a really interesting thing that goes on here where Nedry says, oh, I thought you were one of your big brothers. You're not so bad. You're not so bad. And the thing that I'm not <laughs> sure about here is, first of all, it's another case of them making the dinosaurs male yeah you're right it's a, but Yet that's, again that's just a little side point the main point is i don't know if nedry means to say that this is literally a juvenile 
and I was afraid it was going to be one of your one of its older siblings mm. or it's like older mm-hmm. of its kin. Or if he means I was afraid it was a larger species of dinosaur yeah. that he was encountering. I don't know which one it is. And the reason why that that's crucial is because this Dilophosaurus is majorly undersized. It's the exact opposite of Velociraptor syndrome. This Dilophosaurus is way too small. So it's either intended to be juvenile or it's just one of those liberties that they took with the film. And yeah. I think that it's I think it's a liberty that they took. In how, the book, Dilophosaurus is regular size. Huh. How how large is Dilophosaurus in in, in reality? 20 feet long. Oh my god. So, yeah. you know, it's a it's not the size of T-Rex, but it's a solidly medium-sized theropod dinosaur. I mean, yeah. it's a big animal and in the movie it's smaller than the velociraptors are. It's actually around this, you know, it's probably even a little bit bigger than real velociraptor, but it's more like the size of an actual velociraptor. You know, it's, it looks like it's just two, three feet tall, yeah. five or six feet long. Small enough and it's to just... get into a Jeep Wrangler with Nedry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just staring him down. And suddenly, as Nedry is describing how he has no food, I've got nothing on me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, you are the food. Yeah, you fool. And then it spits its venom. Yeah, it, it gets its frill out, and it makes this awesome sound. Yeah. And it spits a fat glob of venom onto venomous saliva onto Nedry's chest, which he just kind of looks at. And it's an awesome prop or like a use of yeah. set materials because it's just this viscous glob yeah, of dark material. Gooey, whatever, yeah. And then the next shot goes directly to the eyes. Mm-hmm. And then he's blinded. And that, I think, is 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 one of those interesting ideas that when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the idea that dinosaurs could spit venom like like a, a, a spitting cobra or a, another animal today that can spit venom. Um, but so Nedry is now blinded. He runs back up to the Jeep. He gets inside it, and he's like, oh, okay. Well, he tries to. He hits his head on the car. Oh, yeah, and that's right. <laughs> actually, the most fake moment in all of Jurassic Park is the way that he doesn't actually hit his head on the car. He uses his hand and like slaps the leather of the car in- interior while throwing his head back. And it's yeah. so evident that he doesn't actually hit his head. It's a pretty and I'm like, adorably goofy bit of physical comedy. <laughs> it's so goofy. And I mean, David, while Nedry is slip sliding around trying to get the winch all set up, they actually inject some cartoon foley into it. Like like a little wee. When yep. he slips over. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's so funny. It's a total joke. It's like, awesome. they're just having a laugh at his pratfalls here. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he gets owned by the Dilophosaurus. He hits his head. The can of Barbasol rolls down the hill. Yeah. But inside the vehicle, the Dilophosaurus is right there and totally eats him. Yeah. And we get this this great uh, moment where the camera is moving away from the vehicle, and the vehicle's just shaking around as the Dilophosaurus disembowels nedry that's what you get for corporate greed my man yeah and i love nedry's <laughs> screams he has this really particular yell cadence where he goes yeah. Gah-ha, gah-ha, <laughs> and he does it both times right when the venom first goes in his eyes he does that and then when the dilophosaurus is eating him he does it again yeah the same um three-pronged it's, yelling it's attack. amazing shout out to wayne knight he's an excellent actor and and absolutely underutilized he's great on seinfeld he's great in this movie what else is he in now i just want to see 
He's in plenty of other things. Oh, yeah, Dirty Dancing, Basic Instinct. He's been in a bunch of things. Man, he should be Wayne Knighted for that. Anywho. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) He should have been. He should have been. Anyways. So, yeah, so that's the end of Nedry, and that's the end of that kind of simultaneous plot that's going on because Mm -hmm. Spielberg was balancing cutting between three different Mm storylines for a little while since the tour began. He was cutting between the control room, Nedry, and the tour. Mm -hmm. And now it's just brought down to two. Yeah. The Well, I guess there's going to be a new third one. That's the interesting thing. But meanwhile, it's time to rescue Tim from the tree. Mm -hmm. And I think after we rescue Tim from the tree, we should probably call it there and get ready to break it up into act three. Are we going to do an episode per act of this movie? We can't do anything less. How long has this been going on? An hour, 10 minutes already? Sheesh, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's t- <laughs> it's time to rescue Tim from the tree. Oh, that's right. And we got to rescue Tim. <laughs> boy, if I were Dr. Grant, I would not be convinced Tim is alive in that tree. I mean, no way. Tim got flipped over in a car crushed by a t-rex's foot mm-hmm. and then thrown 50 feet off of a ledge into a tree think mm-hmm. about the deceleration that tim yeah. had to experience in that car you kidding I, me? I think that there are few scenarios in which tim survives yet tim proves to be the great crash test dummy of this film because <laughs> he, he does. survives all sorts of <laughs> bonkers stuff including this major fall from the tree. So Dr. Grant leaves Lex down. Lex is super panicked because last time her adult overseer left, it was Gennaro Mm -hmm. who just ditched them. And Dr. Grant, in one of the best line readings of this film, after Lex is like, he left us, he left us. Grant looks her in the eye and says, but that's not what I'm going to (laughs) do. And he has this glint in his eye that I fucking love yeah it's like this mischievous and epic hero glint it's like dr grant is self-actualizing in this moment he's Mm -hmm. like all right man you know what i'm dr alan grant i am the leading dinosaur paleontologist on this planet and if there's one person to usher some kids through a park full of goddamn dinosaurs it's gonna be me and i'm gonna go get this kid from this tree yeah sam neil is so good as dr alan grant i think this is this is the moment where Dr. Grant's character really shines because he's, you know, we've talked about this a bunch of times. He hates kids. He hates kids. He hates kids. And then when shit hits the fan, he's like, all right, I'll protect these kids. And that's growth. Yeah. And he starts to revel in it. <laughs> he likes it. Yeah. And he bonds character with development them. for sure. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to see. And, and the chemistry between these three actors is, is great they're 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 very good these two kid actors are are awesome in this movie absolutely and dr grant has to climb up what honestly is to be fair the world's most climbable tree i've never seen a tree with more horizontal (laughs) branches than this one in the entire world it was extremely lucky single best tree to climb up in the history of trees so he's climbing up there he looks inside and he sees tim and he's you know pretty concerned tim Tim and there's Tim looking back at him and Tim's really upset because he's banged up and he's embarrassed that he threw up yeah (laughs) after all this so much worse could have happened Tim you threw up big whoops (laughs) come on Tim and you know I've got to say knock on wood I haven't thrown up David in almost 20 years 
Wait, what? Yes. Can you believe how's that? that? How is that even possible? Yeah, I probably need to get thrown off of a cliff by a T-Rex for it to happen. I think I lost the ability to do it and have Maybe. become like a horse. <laughs> because when I was a kid, I hated throwing up so much. I really sympathized with Tim. I hated it so much that I was like, man, if I threw up in this Jeep and Dr. Grant came to get me, I'd probably just stay in the car. <laughs> Leave me here to die. I've thrown yeah. up. What's I decided <laughs> when I was nine years old that... I hated throwing up so much that I would just never do it again, and I just haven't since. Wow, that's that's astounding. I mean, I'm not going around <laughs> puking my guts out all over the place, but I've definitely thrown up uh, since I was nine years old. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine? I survived all of college drinking days well, without throwing I mean, up one time. To be fair, college drinking days is only like probably half of junior year and senior year of college. Because that's when we all turn 21 and start drinking. So Very true. Uh, th that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right. Very, very responsibly. Anyway, yeah, I've, got, I've gotten through all of that for some reason. But I think the reason mainly is that my body has forgotten how after so long. So it's actually, it's actually bad. Anyway. So, so if you ever have to mama bird your children, they're just, they're out of luck. Yeah, they're out. Oh, my gosh. They're out of luck in any regard in that case. But... They climb out of the car, and in the case of climbing out of the car, Dr. Grant grabs the wheel, fatefully, and yeah. that dislodges the Explorer from where it was sitting. Yeah, and it's that wheel's means, turn. As Tim is commenting on how he can't get out of a tree, it's impossible, it's not going to be something he can do, they've got to do it, because that car is coming to get them. <laughs> and this is another case where I can't believe how many fantastic, suspenseful, and interesting micro-sequences are crammed yeah. into this movie. It's amazing. There are so many little moments of suspense within the within the overall suspenseful movie. You know, there's, there's the moment when the helicopter is descending to land on Isla Nublar in the first place. It comes down and everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa a little spooky. There's the, <laughs> the feeding the raptors. There's the just watching for the dinosaurs, waiting for them to show up. There's the the goat falling on the amazing sequence with the T-Rex. We'll get to more amazing suspenseful scenes. I, I thought it was funny that you said that your favorite scene of any movie ever is when the T-Rex comes out of the paddock. Mine, my favorite scene in any movie ever is later in this movie. Ooh. We'll talk about it when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> so Grant and Tim race this car down the tree. They narrowly escape getting crushed, and in the end, the car actually falls over the top of them, and Tim has a little wisecrack that they're back in the car again. But Dr. Grant says, but at least we're out of the tree. Yeah. And I think we'll leave it there. So Lex, Grant, and Tim are out of the tree. Ellie and Muldoon are in the search party. Mm -hmm. Nedry has gotten got. Meanwhile, Hammond and Ray Arnold are in the control room freaking the fuck out, mm -hmm. and it's poised for the culmination in act three yeah folks thank you so much for joining us on this episode of real beasts we will finish jurassic park next time uh but as you're joining us for all of these we appreciate every single one of our listeners for sharing this show with your friends and your family getting the word out we love it we appreciate y'all thanks for joining us on these adventures uh Next episode is going to be Act 3 of Jurassic Park. A um, little bit of Act 2. We're still kind of in Act 2 right now. Uh-oh. Um, I know. We better accelerate. <laughs> we better. Um, 
But yeah, I'm excited to be continuing this journey. Once we've finished Jurassic Park, we'll get back to one episode, one film. Yes, we sure <laughs> will. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Thanks, everyone.